0: Camila Bustos began her first semester as a law student at Yale University, knowing her passions, but not knowing what to expect about the experience. She had just moved to New Haven, Connecticut, from her home country of Columbia, where she'd been working as a researcher for De Justicia, a human rights organization. She wasn't as plugged into the culture of elite law schools as some of her classmates, but Camila observed something early on that set the tone for the rest of her time at Yale.
1: My first week, maybe not my first week, but the first few weeks of of the semester, I hear that there is um, a guest speaker that's been invited. She, I think, was the CEO or like she had a high profile at ConocoPhillips. The speaker's
0: name was Janet langford Kerrig, a senior vice president and general counsel for ConocoPhillips, a multinational oil and gas corporation. Yale Law Women and the Yale Law and Business Society sponsored the event. They'd invited her to campus to talk about her job. And, of course, illustrious career, all sorts of accomplishments. Camila was happy to learn that Yale's Environmental Law Association was planning an event of their own, one that would challenge the narrative of the ConocoPhillips rep and highlight how companies like hers are fueling the climate crisis.
1: Why, as law students, we had a special role, you know, to hold this person accountable by asking them challenging questions. They weren't asking to boycott the event or anything. Um, And I remember... Being real excited because there was going to be some presence outside. Uh, And I I, I thought about, you know, my undergraduate experience and the rallies that I had been at.
0: Camila was picturing chanting, singing, megaphones, colorful cardboard signs with climate justice slogans. Like, we were just—I don't know. I was getting excited. But she quickly learned that the way law students protest was nothing like the demonstrations that she and her friends had participated in as undergrads.
1: Now, obviously, law schools are not like that. Law schools are sterile in many ways, and they're places where people carry themselves, like, diplomatically— all, at all times and so the action was was not really an action it was it was two, <laughs> two law students handing out <laughs> brochures at the entrance of the event and people you know people like there was free lunch right so they would like look at the brochure kind of not and then just go inside the room um, and I was like what is happening I mean it was this is what 2018 and I'm like these students don't, are not even faced by any of this
0: in an instant camila's excitement had been replaced with something else deflation and doubt
1: i i felt sad honestly and i was like was this the right move for me was law school the right move for me so i mean that's a very you know anecdotal experience, personal experience but i know many of us have had that in the classroom in extracurricular activities like where we bring up climate and they're like oh that's cute the environment and we're like what <laughs>
0: This is A Matter of Degrees, stories for the climate curious. I'm Dr. Katherine Wilkinson. And I'm Dr.
2: Leah Stokes. And we're back, Katherine. This is the first episode of the season.
0: I mean, I think it's fair to say we are
2: stoked. (laughs) about the start of this season. I'm very excited at all times. You might even say stoked. So, (laughs) Catherine, you are doing the first episode. And what is this episode all about? Uh, Lawyers who don't take climate change seriously enough? Well,
0: yeah, a little bit of that. I've been so excited to develop the story that we're doing in this episode because law schools are one cog in a much bigger machine of complacency and even complicity in causing it and that's the machine of prestigious institutions in the united states i think most of our listeners are aware of the fossil fuel industry's culpability when it comes to the climate crisis And as public awareness increases, signs indicate that it has become increasingly difficult for oil and gas companies to attract and retain top-tier workers, especially folks who are just starting their careers. And that makes sense, right? People don't want to sign up for an industry that is maybe dying and maybe killing a bunch of other things along its way out. A 2017 report from consulting firm Ernst & Young said it clearly... They write, while some of these perceptions, especially among teens or college students, may evolve with more real-world experience, they still point to a significant challenge for oil and gas companies competing for high-value talent to lead them into the future. That's my consulting firm, Report Voice, Leah. Very
2: nice, very nice. (laughs) Um, So it seems like these companies are struggling to get talent because they don't really have a good look right now, do they?
0: Yeah, they don't have perception on their side, for sure. And what's interesting is that without saying it explicitly, the Ernst & Young report actually points to something else, that there is
2: kind of a shadow fossil fuel workforce out there in the world. A shadow workforce in the fossil fuel industry. Okay, tell me more, Catherine. What is that all about? So beyond fossil fuel companies
0: actual employees the industry taps into broader networks of talent through various professional services pr and advertising agencies law consulting investment firms all of these different professional institutions that seem like they aren't connected to the fossil fuel industry but they're actually supplying them with really critical things creative work business strategy, legal representation, financing. It's a whole bunch of stuff that oil and gas companies would have a really hard time surviving without. And on the one hand, these firms are clearly aware of the climate issue. But on the other hand, they are absolutely fine with taking on fossil fuel clients, including, as the EY report goes on to say, Help oil and gas companies overcome the challenges of attracting talented young employees and help them deliver a workforce that is skilled, committed, and ready for tomorrow's challenges. And I'm not kidding, Leah. The title of the report is How Do We Regenerate? this generation's view of oil and gas.
2: I love it. Regenerate. That's very much a environmental climate world lefty kind of word. And here we are seeing how we can regenerate the fossil fuel industry. Pretty funny.
0: Yeah. They're like, just a little composting should do it. (laughs) (laughs) So interestingly, here's another layer of the story many of the firms that are rated among the most quote-unquote prestigious places to work are also the ones that are the most entangled with the fossil fuel industry. And this is despite net zero pledges plenty and other various supposed climate commitments. So we see top grads from elite schools land jobs at these firms, and they can wind up working for the fossil fuel industry because their employer is providing professional services to them.
2: Wow. It's like, you know, you're some bright-eyed, bushy-tailed young lady, and you go to Harvard Law School or something like that. You you think, oh, I'm going to change the world. And then all of a sudden, you're working at a law firm, and you're helping a fossil fuel company, you know, sue local protesters or something like that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Or maybe at the very least, you are thinking, well, I'm going to take a highly paid job to pay off my student loans and then do something more meaningful. But you probably don't think that you're going to be like quarterbacking Chevron. (laughs) It's a whole situation that I think we can summarize as the problem of prestige. And to me, it really begs the question, do folks know that they're going to get co-opted in this way, in these jobs? If they do, and they're grads with heaps of opportunity, Why are they willing to do it? And the bigger question, I think, is that in this critical time for sunsetting the use of fossil fuels, are we going to see this problematic cycle of prestige continue or could we actually see it upended?
2: Well, this is a really interesting idea you've laid out, Catherine, for our show. And, you know, it reminds me of this reporting that I saw last year from New York Times reporter Hiroko Tabuchi. She did this amazing story where she dug in on one big global consulting firm called FTI. And it turns out that they helped to create and in some cases ran entire front groups for the fossil fuel industry you know, these are the fake grassroots organizations that we're seeing more and more uh, from fossil fuel companies pretending like the public is somehow on their side when that's not true at all. Right, they've got some fancy
0: website and you scratch beneath that surface and it turns out it's actually just a couple of consultants sort of making the whole thing shine. And if I remember correctly, Leah, Hiroko faced a lot of backlash from reporting that story, right?
2: Yeah, You know, she had done some really interesting and very valid reporting earlier on the fossil fuel industry, and somehow these big firms went after her and said she was biased against the industry, which was complete, in my opinion. Um, The technical term is BS. (laughs) Um, But I think it just shows what the fossil fuel industry um, thinks about this kind of thing. They don't want these sort of stories getting out there. They don't want people to know that consulting companies and law firms are uh, basically doing their dirty work for them.
0: Yeah, and then another example that came to mind for me was the recent D Smog report about bank boards. And they found that 65% of board directors from 39 different banks had deep connections to polluting industries. And when you think about capital as really the lifeblood that keeps any industry humming, well, That totally needs to be shifted out of fossil fuels and into climate solutions. And so to have bank boards, the highest level of decision-making in these companies, connected to keeping a polluting status quo going, well, that's like super concerning. And I know, Leah, I've said it before, I'll say it again, the climate crisis is a leadership crisis.
2: Yeah, that desmog report is just so fascinating because it feels like in order to qualify to be on a bank board, you have to have fossil fuel experience. (laughs) Ticket to entry. Yeah. And it's like, that's the exact opposite of the kinds of experience and knowledge that we need on bank boards right now. We don't need people who know how to invest in fossil fuels. We need people who know how to, you know, build clean energy and invest in climate solutions. And it's all backwards. It just shows you how far this prestige fossil fuel connection goes.
0: Yeah. The entanglement is so real and pretty dark. And that is exactly the encounter and the awakening that Camila was having as a first-year law student at Yale.
1: We're being told that we need to continue to seek prestige. Like, it's not enough that you've gone into Yale Law School. You have to do the next prestigious thing. Yeah. Is that a fancy clerkship with a federal judge? Is that a fancy firm in New York or, you know, L.A.? I, you know, I don't know. There's good good things to that, but it's it's complicated. One of those
0: complications is Big Law's blasé attitude toward having fossil fuel clients. Camila wanted to do something that would hold the Big Law system accountable for its role in climate change.
2: See, there's always something you can do. I want to hear, what did Camila get up to?
0: Yeah, there there really is. And Camila and some of her classmates figured out that one of the things they could do was to start an organization— called Law Students for Climate Accountability. They designed the organization to really shine a light on the fossil fuel entanglements that these major prestigious law firms have. And one of the first actions they decided to take was one that they knew lawyers hailing from elite institutions would be likely to respond to. They gave them all grades. It's quite brilliant, actually. They decided to create a scorecard for the nation's top law firms on climate change. And they drew on two different things. They took something that's existed for a while called the Vault 100 Law Firm Rankings that top students from top law schools look at to think about where's the best place for me to launch my career? What firm is the best firm? And then they took a bunch of publicly available data about the business practices and the clients of those firms. And they gave them a grade from A to F.
2: A climate grade. You know, I did a report like this recently for utilities, and I actually heard it ended up in a very senior utility meeting. So these folks pay attention to these A to F grades. What did the process look like in her case? Well, it involved a lot of spreadsheets. Ah, spreadsheets are secret weapon in the climate fight. (laughs) Exactly.
0: And in this case, they drew on the database for climate litigation that's housed at Columbia University. There were, I think, about seven people working on the project. They spent a lot of time really rigorously figuring out what criteria is the most important, what weight to give to the different criteria, right? Because there's always some degree of subjectivity about how much do you value doing work for. Renewable energy companies, for example, where does fossil fuel gas fit into the evaluation? And after months of work and being really thoughtful about how they put the analysis together, the day finally came to release the scorecard.
1: We launched the score car, and at that point, it was just, uh, let's see if this gets circulated, and let's see what feedback we get, at least from, you know, the usual suspects in our climate community. And I think immediately the response was overwhelmingly positive. Like, I was receiving texts, emails, Facebook messages, Twitter uh, inbox messages, uh, basically saying, this is incredible, like, Amazing. your work and your colleagues' work is incredible. Um, so that was kind of the first reaction.
0: In the end, just four Out of the 100 vault firms got A's, 26 got big fat F's. And the report also concluded that vault 100 firms worked on 10 times as many cases exacerbating the climate crisis as cases addressing it. And those firms were the legal advisors on five times more transactional work for the fossil fuel industry than for the renewables industry. Wow. Yeah. Not really a pretty picture. And I thought that this might be a nice time, Leah, to get you to play a game. Ooh, fun. (laughs) Little levity. So our producer, the one and only Jamie Kaiser, went through and we love Jamie. (laughs) So she went through and she compared the vault rankings against the climate accountability scorecard. And I want to see if you can guess what grade these firms received. Okay. We're going to start at the tip top of the vault rankings. The very first firm on the list is called Kravath, Swain and Moore. And it's one of the nation's oldest law firms. And the bio that they have on the vault website says Kravath has settled on a lean and mean approach to world dominance with two strategically placed offices in New York and London.
2: Wow. World dominance. Okay. Well, if they're going to try to dominate the world, they may not care too much about climate progress. So I'm going to guess they got a D. I'm sorry to tell you it's even worse than that. Oh, no. They failed. They got an
0: F. (laughs) Dun, dun, dun. Okay. Round two. Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher. They are ranked at number nine in the U.S., And Yale Students for Climate Accountability actually ran a campaign against Gibson Dunn called hashtag Dunn with Dunn, (laughs) D-U-N-N, because their climate track record is abysmal. And they zeroed in on them largely because they represented the Dakota Access Pipeline. Not really great company to be keeping. So Leah, what do you think they got on the scorecard?
2: Well, you kind of gave me some hints there. I think I got to go with an F this time.
0: <laughs> yep. hmm They definitely failed. And um, so third, we're going to go with Sullivan and Cromwell- They're number four on the Vault list, and they have some of the biggest corporate clients in the world. Their Vault bio says, Big Law, Powerhouse, Sullivan and Cromwell has followed, if not created, the blueprint for legal success.
2: Oh, that's like my hashtag, too. I didn't just follow. I created the blueprint for success. That's what I tell everybody. Um, So I think if they're really focused on all that stuff, uh, they're probably not up with the climate future. So I'm going to go with another F. Yeah. I think you're sort of picking up
0: here, Leah. There's a bit of theme. What about some A's?
2: Come on, Catherine. We need some happy news.
0: Okay. I know it might sound like we're cherry picking here, but get this. When you look at the top 20 firms on the vault list, all of them got either D's or F's on the climate scorecard with the exception of three. And those three, they only managed to get C's. So truly, much of the nation's tip-top legal talent, it's doing the bidding of the fossil fuel industry. It's mind-boggling.
2: Wow. Well, if that story and that report from Camila and her colleagues doesn't put this prestige fossil fuel problem into laser-sharp focus, I don't
0: know what will. So Camila and her team also launched pledge campaigns to begin bringing some accountability into this system. One of them is for firms pledging to avoid fossil fuel clients. Surprise, surprise. None of the scorecard firms signed on to that. But they did get a number of small boutique firms and firms specializing in environmental law. And then there was a second pledge, which was focused on law students
1: And it was essentially saying, you know, I will not work at these firms or I will do my best to not work at these firms. And if I have to work at these firms, I will uh, consider this in my decision-making process. It's the pull to join these firms that's so interesting to me. You know, I assume that after taking
2: out an arm and a leg in loans just to get through law school, getting one of these coveted spots at a big firm, which comes with a high salary, seems pretty appealing.
0: Yeah, and Camila spoke about the very real financial pressures that people feel, and the complexity of the decision that they have to grapple with—it's
1: tricky. And this is this is the legal industry. The way it works is that most of us have to get lo- like loans. <laughs> That's the only way you can afford right. the absurd cost of legal education in the U.S. It's different in other countries, right. um, but because of of how it works, and so we are facing hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt and again if you have yeah. family that can just pay that for you that's wonderful and and you're free to really choose and be and be free in that that decision but many of us don't. And so then we have to figure out, okay, do I have family obligations? Um, do I, how do I want to go about paying this debt? And so it's, it, there's certainly agency, um, but there's also a question about structure. There's, there's a pipeline. I mean, law schools want you to go to fancy firms because then yeah. you pay all your loan with your fancy salary, right? Camila was happy to see that
0: the scorecard didn't go totally ignored by the vault firms. And some of them actually seemed engaged by it.
1: It's been interesting to hear from instance, like from firms who've reached out to us about our methodology and who have questions and who maybe are pushing the way we're mm. assigning scores. And, you know, maybe they want to give suggestions or they feel that the grade they got is unfair. It, and again, I think um, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, it's an interesting because I think it speaks to the impact, yeah. which sometimes is hard to measure on these things because it's so many of it happens in like conversations, you know, in, in, in like conference rooms that we don't have access to. So I
0: asked Camila, what could these firms do to raise their failing grades?
1: First, increasing renewable portfolio. Um, I think that's an easier ask than asking them to drop a client, if we're being realistic. Um, Of course, in my ideal world, they would drop their representation of Exxon immediately and any other fossil fuel clients. um, And they would stop partaking in this litigation uh against you know counties and municipalities and states that are trying to hold the fossil fuel accountable um fossil fuel industry accountable um because that's also part of it it's like you're not just being neutral here you're literally taking a side and being paid to do so um so can we at least you know step back um so, yeah, facing out fossil fuel work, increasing increasing their renewal portfolio, and thinking about climate change and sustainability in broader ways. It's not about recycling your office. It's not about having, like, LED light bulbs. Like, that's all great. Right. Like, energy efficiency, we love to see it, but that's not enough, right? Yeah, but, like, welcome to the year 2001. <laughs> exactly, exactly.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so what's next for law students for climate accountability?
0: Well, Camila just graduated from Yale. She's not at one of the vault firms. You may be shocked. She's clerking for a judge in Connecticut now, and she thinks that they will keep the organization going and actually expand it into not just a student organization, but a national nonprofit that works, again, not just at Yale or Harvard, but across all law schools in the country. And even though in many ways law school culture conditioned her to respect the rules and follow process, you know, she's going to continue getting out there and being an activist.
2: Well, that was fascinating, but it's just law firms, right? You told me at the top that there's a lot of other industries entangled with the fossil fuel industry. So, so what else did you uncover, Catherine?
0: Oh, yes. The issues of prestige in big law are a prime example, but they are not the whole puzzle. And for context on the broader movement and broader strategies to disentangle professional institutions from the fossil fuel industry, I turned to someone who you also know, who has a lot of experience leading climate campaigns that try to really hit different levers of power in the fossil fuel economy.
3: My name is Jamie Henn, and I'm the director of Fossil Free Media, which is a nonprofit media lab that supports groups who are taking on the fossil fuel industry.
2: Oh, it's Jamie Henn. Oh, I love this. I'm looking forward to hearing more about what he has to say. It's Jamie. And one of the first points that he
0: made was that this whole prestige economy, it's not happenstance, right? This is all by design.
3: The place that I'd start would be to say that the fossil fuel industry has worked very intentionally for decades to cloak itself in this type of prestige. You know, they've worked hard to make sure that the banks, PR agencies, universities, law firms, all the pillars that you need to hold up an enterprise like fossil fuels are there to support them. That's why the Koch brothers invests millions of dollars on college campuses. It's why the fossil fuel companies create partnerships with major banks like J.P. Morgan Chase to assure that they get the financing they need. It's why the American Petroleum Institute paid hundreds of millions of dollars to Edelman, probably the most prestigious PR firm in the world, to do their PR account. It wasn't just to get the work done. It was to validate the centrality of the fossil fuel industry to our economy. So much of what they do is an effort to make us feel like there's no escaping um, this problem, even though the science and evidence shows us that we can.
0: Jamie's career has actually taken a bunch of different turns when it comes to building coalitions and taking on the fossil fuel industry. And you'll remember that really early on, he was part of co-founding the advocacy group 350.org.
3: You know, back back in 2011, we were running a campaign against the Keystone XL pipeline, and we did this series of sit-ins at the White House to kind of help elevate that fight and and pressure President Obama to reject the project. And you know, and that started basically a decades worth of campaigning on this one particular pipeline. And as we were deep in the Keystone fight in sort of 2012 and 2013, we were just feeling like, okay, this is this is really strategic. This is a way to push President Obama, but we cannot just keep fighting one pipeline at a time.
0: But after a while, Jamie realized he wanted to think bigger and take on the whole damn system.
3: This is a way to push President Obama, but we cannot just keep fighting one pipeline at a time. We have to find a way to kind of systematically go after the fossil fuel industry. And and that's where the divestment campaign kind of came out of. We were really looking at what are past examples where people have successfully targeted a kind of entire economic system, in that case, apartheid South Africa, um, and the companies that were complicit in it, in our case, the kind of fossil fuel empire that we were trying to take down. And so that was sort of, I think, the, the mental shift that we needed to go through to think about, if you're trying to kind of take down a, a structure like this, you, you really have to go after the pillars that hold it up.
0: Ultimately, Jamie left 350.org and started Fossil Free Media. They're a nonprofit media lab that does creative work for grassroots groups, other climate campaigns, and they're really providing a service that oil and gas companies can pay heaps of cash for, but the climate movement often can't afford. And they're also running a similar campaign to what Camila and her colleagues have going. But instead of focusing on firms that handle, say, Exxon's depositions and Shell's legal briefs, they're targeting the firms that design their ads and strategize about their public image.
2: Ah, what an interesting angle on the
0: climate fight. Exactly. As friend of the pod Bill McKibben has written, if money is the oxygen on which the fire of global warming burns, then PR campaigns and snappy catchphrases, they are the kindling And so Jamie and his collaborators birthed the Clean Creatives campaign.
3: Clean Creatives is an effort to try and stop PR and ad agencies from working with the fossil fuel industry. If we're not actively trying to dismantle the industry's ability to spread all of this propaganda, um, we're just not going to be able to break through with the science and the truth that needs to be told.
0: So the campaign has a four-part strategy. And the first is really just about making visible the relationships that exist between PR and advertising agencies and the fossil fuel companies that they serve as clients. And the second is reaching out to the industry directly, in particular to creatives who work in these PR and advertising firms.
2: Makes sense. I mean, I'm sure a lot of these creative people don't really want to be working for fossil fuel companies anyway. I think that's
0: right. And it's something that Jamie has heard from folks directly.
3: Because a lot of people work at these big firms and they get into it for the right reasons. They want to make art and they want to change the world. And here they are working on the Exxon Mobil account. account. Yeah. So Shit. How did it's I like, I'm changing there? it the wrong way. <laughs> um, exactly. So, you know, we're reaching out to those people and we've had hundreds and hundreds of individual copywriters and video people and designers sign up and say, look, you know, my firm might be doing this work, but I don't want to do it. He was
0: really careful not to put blame too squarely on the shoulders of employees of these companies, especially not employees who are lower down on the decision-making ladder.
3: It's neither strategic nor appropriate to kind of put that pressure on people. Um, There has to be an organized public demand to shift these institutions and to target them directly. Otherwise, they will just continue to operate in the way that they always have.
0: And that's where the third prong comes in.
3: And then third, we're reaching out to some of the other clients out there.
0: Targeting the wider ecosystem of businesses and brands who use these PR and advertising agencies to do creative work for them.
3: So as rich and wealthy as the fossil fuel industry is, they actually do comparatively little advertising when you put that up against the major consumer brands. Um, because they assume-
0: Procter & Gamble probably has some
3: bigger bills there. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so Procter & Gamble, uh, Unilever. You know, Unilever has made huge climate commitments and been very outspoken. They're one of the largest advertisers in the world. Uh, they spend $8 billion a year on advertising. Um, if Unilever came out and told- their agencies, hey, look, we're committed to climate change. We don't want to work with you if you're turning around after you take our call and talking to Exxon about how you're going to spread this misinformation. So we're really trying to pressure them to kind of come out and do the right thing.
0: And the fourth piece of the strategy is reaching out to folks who can apply more systemic political and legal pressure on the ad and PR industries.
3: I've been pleasantly surprised, actually, by how many members of Congress say, hey, yeah, like, I hate dealing with these people. <laughs> they're like, you know, I, I try and do something good on climate and then this huge ad campaign comes running against me or there's all of these lobbyists coming into my office and telling me I have to do X, Y, Z. So I think that people like Senator Sheldon Whitehouse or Congressman Ro Khanna, you know, they're starting to do hearings and inquiries into misinformation. And the same then, you know, there's the attorney general lawsuits at the state level and complaints moving at the FTC, um, I, I, you know, I guess my message to people in the advertising industry is like, this wave is coming. And so there's a choice to be made, you know, do you want to stick it out with Chevron? Um, Yeah, maybe they're paying you 10 million, 100 million bucks a year, but the economy in the world is shifting. And I think that advertisers, again, there's no reason why they're like, their business doesn't depend on working with oil and gas companies. They could make the switch. And I think we're appealing to both their the angels of the better nature and the, you know, the the, uh, the, the the bottom line to try and convince them that this is the right move to make.
0: Will you tell us about any of the kind of wins the Clean Creatives campaign has had so far?
3: Yeah, sure. So, you know, so we've just been around for six months um, and it's been phenomenal how quickly it's been growing. So, already almost 100 different firms and PR agencies have signed our pledge to say they won't work with the fossil fuel industry. And just like divestment, we're getting bigger and bigger names and bigger firms as we go. Actually, one of our biggest wins was right off the bat, um, which came when our friend Bill McKibben wrote an article about the campaign for The New Yorker. Um, They ended up contacting Porter Novelli, which is a kind of long-time PR firm. Uh, they worked on, like, the Peace Corps um, and have been around since, like, the 50s. Um, you know, Porter Novelli was running a campaign called Natural Gas Genius, which was uh, <laughs> it was about getting woke millennials to like natural gas. And so it was, like, all these, like, people being, like, uh, I'm cooking with gas and, like, ah, this is great. Uh, this is a modern home. You know, it was, like, Airbnbs <laughs> with natural gas. Um, it was ridiculous. It was, frankly, like, pretty awful. Uh, but, you know, I guess effective um and uh when the new yorker fact checker contacted porter novelli and said hey would you like to comment on this um they actually said hey give us two weeks and we'll get back to you um and they came back and said look we're dropping the american public gas association as a client because this is contradictory to our commitment on climate justice now has porter novelli completely cleaned up their act hard to tell a lot of Mm -hmm. this is opaque um so we we want to learn more. Um, they sometimes don't return our calls. <laughs> but, uh, but still, it was a major sign that I think a PR agency realized, wait a second. Like if our identity is going to be about helping brands reach young people yeah. and Gen Z or millennials, we can't be seen to be working with the fossil fuel industry. Like those things are incompatible yeah. now. Um, and that was a really big deal and I think opened the door for a lot more Folks to get on board, and so we're reaching kind of a really, I think, critical inflection point for the campaign. I I hate to make predictions because change is always hard and like takes longer than you expect. But I would say I think that this fall, between kind of Climate Week, which is this big, you know, week of climate events in New York City, to COP, you know, our hope is to really put this challenge out there and get some major PR companies to say, look, this. COP26, the UN Climate Talks in November, is all about net zero. It's all about how do we actually meet 1.5. And if you're a PR company, the way that you help that fight is not by changing light bulbs in your office. It's about the work that you do in the world and a commitment that you will only work with clients who are dedicated to, to that target and are helping us get there. And I think that there's growing pressure on these people to say, you really have to do the right thing and move in that direction. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm ho- I'm cautiously optimistic and hopeful. Um, and I also know that these people care deeply about their brand, their public perception.
0: I'm curious, are any of those, the movement among employees, is any of that gathering enough steam where from the inside employees are saying, hey, we're not going to keep working for you unless we stop doing this?
3: Yeah, I think people should know that there are people within all of the major agencies who are advocating for change within their companies. The same goes for the social media platforms, places like Twitter and Facebook, who are still allowing fossil fuel ads and really should ban them. And the same even goes for, you know, a lot of the finance firms and other places. And so I think employees, hopefully what we're doing is giving people a chance to see each other and have that permission structure to come out. And, and if not, you know, vocally organized, at the very least, uh, we're always happy to get leaked some information about what's going on inside <laughs> your firm within the realms of the law of course. So, you know, I think that that's been really These are
0: these are the good leaks. Pipeline leaks we do not like. These are the very,
3: very I have good to put that disclaimer. <laughs> I think that's that's shifted now. And I think the funny yeah. thing is that actually you know the real creative and promising and lucrative work right now is in the clean energy economy. Um, We used to have to say, like, please do this out of the goodness of your heart, you know, like, trade in your business loafers for a pair of Birkenstocks, and, you know, like... (laughs) And now it's like, no, like, this is big money. So I think that actually and this is where your question around prestige comes into play. There's, there's this inertia built into the system where it somehow still feels like, well, if you're really serious, you should go work on like the Exxon account. I I think that shifted. I think people suddenly realize like, wait a second, I don't want that on my resume. I don't want that on my LinkedIn. Like if I'm giving a, my work portfolio to someone, they're much more excited to see something for Rivian or Tesla or Ford on the E-150 than, you know, doing an ad for Chevron about, like, how they keep the lights on. Like, it just doesn't... (laughs) That's not the work that's exciting anymore. And so I think that it still has appeal because the industry just still has so much money that they're spending on it. But I think that especially young people are realizing that there are other opportunities out there. And I... It is so important. You know, I remember a moment in the fossil fuel divestment campaign where we heard that Shell had gone to, I think it was Cambridge University in the UK, and mm-hmm. they'd thrown this big job fair for students to come work at Shell. And, and Cambridge is the, you know, it's the MIT there, it's the top prestigious yeah. university, especially for engineering. Um, and nobody showed up at the job fair. And that, oh, wow. that like, sent a shockwave through Shell. Like, that was, the, that was the thing that made them say, oh, wait, you know, we've got to, like, pay attention to this divestment campaign.
2: Wow. You know, one of the themes I'm really seeing emerge from all this reporting you've done, Catherine, is this generational divide, which we see in so many areas of the climate movement. We have all these young folks saying, you know, we don't want to be tied up with the fossil fuel industry anymore. We're
0: doing it our own way. Exactly. And... That's something that resonates deeply with Camila as a young professional herself. Is there any argument that these firms make about continuing to represent fossil fuel interests that like you find at all convincing or does it all just feel like the thinnest of thin strawmen?
1: Uh, Yeah, I don't. I don't find it particularly compelling. I mean, I do care a lot about the people who work in those industries, right? they are people who have then devoted their careers to fossil fuel work and all of a sudden are facing transition issues. And like, you know, especially in the coal sector, we see this across countries. Like, I'm from Colombia and like, you know, our number two export is coal. Number one is oil. And so from from that you know from that perspective, absolutely, like there's something to be said about yeah. how do we manage a just transition but that to me seems totally separate from from the issue of fancy firms yeah. representing like huge corporations yeah and and again, I think we are learning and 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 trying to not repeat some of the Mistakes that maybe happened with tobacco or like... But but that's the thing. Tobacco, tobacco companies lost their social license in many ways after after it was right. revealed how much they, law, they lied and deceived people. And I think fossil fuel firms are, are going through some of that. And I think we forget to talk mm-hmm. about like you know climate change is tied to capitalism right and and and, and I mean of course people have said this like you know I'm not I'm not the first one to say yeah. it but what when what I when what I mean by this is that I don't think it's a coincidence it's not a coincidence that law firms the prestigious law firms are the richest law firms are the largest law firms that tend to attract people from Harvard and Yale and the other top schools you know like it's obviously all all interconnected and so I think I think there's like a yeah human psychology in it and I think for lawyers especially it's such a conservative field I mean even within folks yeah. that are progressive or whatever, liberal, you want to call them, like, it's a conservative field that it's, it's, it attracts people who are risk averse. It attracts people who believe in the system, yeah. who believe their rules, who believe in our, in our judicial system in many ways. And I think our, my generation believes in it. Of course, we've gone through law school. We, we think there's a role for law and lawyers. And at the same time, we're yeah. seeing a crisis in the Supreme Court. We have seen, you know, the rise of Trump. And the, the rise of populism across the world, we're seeing we saw we're seeing COVID nineteen pandemic, and the way it's highlighted all of these other social crises, and we're seeing the climate crisis, and we're like, what, <laughs> right? So so I think I don't know. It's just I think a, um, it's a great question.
3: Look, if you are actually an engineer whose specialty is decarbonization, um, I might give you a pass if you're working at ExxonMobil, you know, maybe they actually have you working on the right thing. If you're a PR person, no pass. (laughs) You don't don't get that.
0: (laughs) So what do you think, Leah? Have I convinced you that prestige is a climate problem, that the hustle for... Elite careers creates blinders or even complicity.
2: Yeah, it's been a pretty fascinating episode, Catherine. You know, so many people, they're just focused on their own little corner of the world, right? Like how am I going to gain power or get a really fancy job or you know, do what's right for my family. And I can see why people do that, but There's a bigger thing happening here in so many ways. We have a climate crisis making our planet unlivable. We have an income inequality crisis. We have a racial justice crisis. There are these bigger problems in society, and people can sometimes think, like, that's not my job to fix those problems. But when we hear the story of someone like Camila, it's really inspiring because she said, you know what? It is my job to address this problem. And she even potentially, you know, risked her own career in some ways by sticking her neck out there and making that really interesting report about law firms.
0: I think it's totally inspiring. And it actually really left me reflecting about an earlier time in my life. After grad school, I spent about two years at one of those fancy management consulting firms, not FTI, but that is another story for another time. But what I really recall is this culture of incredible anxiety among employees. There was constant grading, constant ranking, up or out, promoted or you're gone. Hours that were frankly so ridiculous, you barely had time to eat, much less consider bigger questions like, oh, I don't know, is there something off about focusing on offsetting consultants' flights while we try to keep Exxon's wells flowing? And even if you did... Right. Even if you did grapple with those questions, good luck raising them in some all-powerful partner group who, you know, the thing that they are there to do is revenue. I was never asked to work for a fossil fuel client, and I'm honestly not sure what would have happened if I'd said no, but I look back and think, why didn't I speak up about The entanglement more generally? Why didn't I say anything about the conflict between creating climate strategies for some clients and keeping oil and gas going for others? And in part, you know, I actually became quite depressed when I was there. But in part, I also just didn't believe I held or could build any power in that system. And I think that's where Jamie's work And Camila's work is so exciting because they're creating that sense of a bigger collective. And I wonder, like if there had been something like a clean consultants campaign, maybe that would have been different, right? Maybe that could be different for others in the future.
2: Yeah, you know, Catherine, sometimes when we're in it, when we're in a job, we're just trying to get through each day or each week. It can be hard to reflect on the bigger systems that we're part of. But I feel like Jamie and Camila are really inspiring because these are people who kind of looked up from their desk and said, wait a second, what is the world I actually want to create? And and took on responsibility to try to make that world happen. So Leah, you know that I am
0: a notorious word nerd. Mm-hmm. And... My most favorite website of all websites, bookmark this, people, etimonline.com. You mean like
2: etymology.com, basically?
0: (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. And you can put in any word. And so when we were starting to think about this episode, I was like, what is the root of the word prestige? And it actually comes from the Latin for delusion or illusion. And the word prestigious in Latin means full of tricks.
2: Wow. Fascinating. It's kind of like you have a clouded mind. You can't see clearly. You're sort of being excited by or following things that you think are important, but that maybe aren't actually what you should be doing. (laughs) Totally.
0: And the system of elitism and prestige is really clouding. And I think the reality is that we all are living in this liminal time, and lots of us are trying to figure out how to leverage the current system that we live in to transform it for a more just and livable future. And at the end of the work on this episode, it's just left me thinking that we all need to have our antenna up for how we might be blinded, how we might get co opted despite our best efforts, and you know, the ways that the status quo really wants to lull us back into silence. And look, I don't think prestige is going anywhere anytime soon, but maybe what's possible is to flip it so that the prestigious thing becomes climate action. The prestigious thing becomes being involved in the work to build a life-giving future.
2: A Matter of Degrees is co-hosted by me, Dr. Leah Stokes. And me, Dr. Katherine Wilkinson. We are a production of Postscript Media, podcasts for a changing planet. Jamie Kaiser
0: and Dalvin Abouadji produced the show. Stephen Lacey is our executive editor.
2: Sean Marquand edited, mixed, and composed our theme song, and additional music came from Blue Dot Sessions.
0: The show art was designed by Carl Spursum. And our website was designed by Caroline Hadalak-Sono.
2: A special thanks to our funders and supporters who make this show possible.
0: Big thanks to The Sunrise Project, Northlight Foundation, McKnight Foundation, The 11th Hour Project, and Bloomberg Philanthropies.
2: A big shout out to UC Santa Barbara Dean of Social Sciences, the one and only Charlie Hale, who is not only a fan of our show, but a big supporter of making it happen. And thanks also to Lacey Oliveira, Val Kwan, and Claudia Diaz for all their
0: support. If you're digging the show, please hop onto Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating or leave a review.
2: Five stars! And come back soon as we tell more stories for the climate curious. Leah. That the is form ridiculous. of my laughing is like very staccatic. It's so weird. Um, <laughs> they call that the cackle uh, Yeah, or the squirrel farm. laugh. My sister and I both have like a squirrel <laughs> laugh. You know, like when squirrels go like, it's like that.